on speed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Through the Frame. I'm your host, Jesse Carosi, and this podcast has been brought to you by the HPA. For those that are not familiar with the HPA, the HPA is a nonprofit member association that connects businesses and individuals. There are several committees, all led by high-end professionals, dedicating their time for the betterment of the industry. These committees create virtual and in-person events when we're not all self-isolating, of course, and many education opportunities. Please check us out at hpaonline.com. And for anyone that's new to this podcast that would like to hear more about the HPA and who I am, please check out episode one of this podcast series for a more in-depth breakdown. So we're here today to talk about the feature film 1917. If anyone tuning in hasn't seen it, definitely check it out. This movie won Academy Awards for Cinematography, Visual Effects, Sound Mixing, Golden Globe Awards for Best Director, Best Motion Picture and Drama, Best Original Score, as well as a ton of BAFTA Awards, and American Society of Cinematographers Award, and many, many, many more. This movie's incredible from many angles. Thanks very much. I'd also just like to take this opportunity to thank the VFX producer Sona Pack, the VFX production team of Oliver Taylor, Ali Pack, Abby Lazander-Reed, the editorial team of Lee Smith, Pierce Romer, Gemma Bourne and Alex Waite, and my assistant Debs Kavanagh without whose excellent work, I don't think the film would have turned out the way it did. Awesome. Well, I'm glad we got the opportunity to throw that out there. All right, so fair warning for anyone that's seen the movie, we're not about to debunk exactly when, where, and how each shot transitioned into the next. We want to keep that bit of the movie magic alive, but rather we'll look into the workflow that goes into making some of this possible. And for those that by chance haven't seen the movie, just so you know what we're talking about, it's presented to look like one shot from beginning to end of the movie. So rather than cutting between various angles, having scene breaks, etc., it's meant to look like one long continuous shot literally from the beginning to the end of the movie, which is pretty cool. So our guest here today that was on the front lines for this project is Miles Roby. Welcome to the show, Miles. Thanks for having me. Of course. All right. So for everyone that doesn't know, Miles, he's joining us from London. He's a VFX editor and has worked on many feature films like Aladdin, Fantastic Beasts, Skyfall, two of the last Harry Potter movies, and of course, 1917. So I think a good place to kick this off would be to chat about how all of this was conceptualized before production. I feel like there are a few great behind the scenes YouTube videos for anyone that hasn't seen these, definitely check them out on some of the work that went into this but this was more on a practical pre-production standpoint and how the set was built and staged, et cetera. But I'm curious, Miles, when you started on day one in editorial, what exactly was in place in regards to some of the previs or anything to help get you up to speed on what you were about to walk into? Sure. I came on just a week before shoot kicked off. So the last week of March uh, last year, but even before I'd started, after I knew I I knew I was getting the job about six months ahead of that and after only a couple of months so probably four months out from shoot I started getting picks playlists come through so picks being the kind of online daily system and there, there were playlists of kind of cast rehearsals camera tests and I was getting you know a couple of these through a week from that early stage so even months out ahead of the shoot I was able to kind of see a lot of the the prep and to begin with it was just the actors in the middle of an empty field 
with tape and cones and things marking out what the the sets would eventually be. Oh, cool. And but the visual effects department had been on for months before that even. I think they, they were on for about eight months before shoot began. So all of the kind of complexities that went into all of the, the transitions to make it look as if it is one continuous shot were all kind of meticulously and forensically mapped out way in advance uh, so much so that one of the first things that we did maybe on my second or third day uh, after starting was we went and met with sam uh, mendez the director at shepperton studios where the production unit was based uh, and we went through what was referred to as our stitch doc which was a kind of a 40 page document which had all of the cut points or the stitch points broken down with storyboards and even for everyone there was a top-down little 2D map which um, had the camera position throughout the shot uh, lined up in it. Like a map of the actual set to show this is where the camera will be during this cut and this is where the, where it'll pick up from? Exactly that. So it was a top, wow. because they knew the dimensions of the sets and they knew where the camera would be going. But this has all been rehearsed very thoroughly with Roger and and the camera department and Sam during the rehearsal process. So they knew that in order to create this transition, the camera would need to follow this path during the shot, starting off facing this way, ending up facing that way. And between those two points, there would be a fairly natural moment of where a transition could take place. And it wasn't just they had kind of a number of cuts that had to be had to take place because we may have had two locations that were in a completely different part of the country. So you know, <laughs> they they had on the, on this document, which went through, I think I I, I started and it was you know, version 40 or something of the document. It went through a lot of iterations. <laughs> <laughs> they had major or minor stitches. So the major stitches would have been the absolute, we have to cut here because, you know, we're changing the location and we're going to a different set. And minor stitches, which is where they kind of built in a few little get out of jail cards within shots where potentially this could be a place where we transition from one take to another, but it isn't necessarily a deal breaker if it does or not. It's just basically they, they tried to give themselves a little bit of insurance within takes. Um, hmm. So, so yeah, that was quite impressive um, to see from such an early stage, you know, before shooting. But in terms of previs, there wasn't a huge amount of that. There was, there was some. Uh, the plane crash was, was prevised and the, kind of the run through acoust at the night time that had been previous. I think probably we had about 10 mini sequences that had been kind of mapped out and previous, but it wasn't like on the scale of a you know, Aladdin or a big budget superhero movie where they previous almost the whole movie. This was very much moments and it was more, more from a kind of tech fizz standpoint. They just needed to know technically how they were going to shoot it. Mm -hmm. some, some of the transitions were quite challenging. Huh, very cool. Yeah, it's amazing to walk in to a job that's been that planned out a lot of times you don't get that opportunity yeah I, I think it was it was quite evident from from starting and a lot of people having been on it for a while people were kind of itching at the bit to get going actually just start shooting it because with something like this where it's quite an organic process there's only so much you can plan so so much of it is kind of an unknown quantity of what happens sure. on the day and so they planned as much as they felt they could. And then it was a kind of leap of faith once they started shooting as to how these would actually translate from theory to practice. Yeah. All right. So we'll get into some of the workflow and things like that. But I think what would be great to also touch on is, do you know what this was shot on? 
Yes, yeah, yeah. it was um, shot uh, predominantly on the Alexa Mini LF, which I see. Uh, I think I'm right in in saying this was one of, if not the first film that was shot using it. It's a kind of scaled down Alexa large format camera, which is very small, very lightweight. And I think it had been something that Ari had worked on with Roger. And it's a remarkable piece of kit. Um, it, was, it was pretty much a prototype when we used it. And the film would have been significantly more challenging to, to make with a larger sized camera because of how tight a lot of these trenches were and the weight of the camera itself with lots of steady cam work. It was a kind of bold move to go with a barely untested camera, but I think it paid off. Yeah, well, at least it was Aerie. You know, a lot of the a lot of the DPs that I work with, they love Aerie, but are sometimes forced to not use Aerie because it's not 4K. And then, you know, the LF came out and a lot of TV shows are switching to to shoot on that, which is great. Yeah. And they, they did have a kind of a backup uh, Alexa Mini that was used very rarely. They had a couple of shots that were put on, on a drone and the Alexa Mini was used for that. Um, so that was... Upscaled actually from not being quite 4K, and the Alexa Mini LF was actually down converted from not quite 5K to 4K final delivery. I see. And in terms of the resolution, okay, so this was 4.5K open gate. Was this Ari Raw then? Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, 4.5K open gate. Whether it was Ari Raw or not, I can't. I, I can't. see. Well, the reason, yeah, the reason I was asking was if. Your takes were, I've read online that the takes were between eight and nine minutes sometimes. And thinking about how big that is, if it's Airy Raw, you're talking about like 300 gigabytes-ish for one shot. And I guess it depends on what camera mags you were using, but they probably would have had to reload after like a couple takes, right? <laughs> yeah, for some of the longer works, some of the longer shots, definitely I think that would have been, you know, one or two shots per card, I think would have been the maximum. <laughs> but for... You know, a lot of the shots were kind of, you know, between a minute and five minutes. And oh, okay. Some were shorter, some were longer. There was never a kind of hard or fast rule as to, you know, how long the takes were going to be. And they kind of, some of them, as the takes progressed, they came down in length because as the, the more they'd been rehearsed and practiced, the more concise the performances became. Oh, that's interesting, though, because at that point, that's actually affecting the length of the movie. Well, yeah, I mean, when you, when you have a one-shot movie... It's very important that you have the pacing nailed before you start shooting, really. So I think they worked very hard with continuity and, and scriptwriter and every, everyone involved in the rehearsal process. They knew that the film was going to live or die on its pacing, really. It had to, if we ended up with a four-hour movie at the end of shoot, we would have been in trouble because the only thing we could have done would, would have been to speed ramp the entire thing where there was no dialogue, basically. <laughs> Um, which we did a lot of anyway, but um, uh, the, the kind of the DNA of the film was built into the script and the rehearsal process, and that tied into everything. It tied into how they built the sets. It tied into the whole feel of the film. You know, it was um, it see. was paced as it was made. I'm curious what kind of safety there was on the frame in terms of okay, you shot 4.5k. Was there a five percent punch in or something? Because watching the movie, I felt like there was many many times where the cut happened during some pretty serious camera movement and to line this up from the tail end of one take to the beginning of the next would probably require repositioning of the frame to line them up which may mean punching one in or zooming one out etc to to make them kind of line up well so the the safety on the frame was actually only two and a half percent so oh, in, wow. ed in editorial in editorial we got a kind of a 97 percent 
percent of the frame uh, come through. So we only had two and a half percent on the sides. But because it was being shot four three open gate, and we, it was being delivered to the Avid uh, as one seven eight, we had an awful lot on the top and the bottom of frame that was being shot but not being transferred in the first instance in the dailies. So we always knew that there was um, quite a lot of image at the top and bottom of frame. And occasionally, if we needed to use that for a transition or if, if Lee, the editor, wanted to do a reposition or something in frame just to keep people's you know, heads not popping out of frame, you know, on, on such long takes and lots of movement, you know, your, the, the characters aren't always in the center of frame. So occasionally we'd re-request um, Company 3 who are doing our dailies re-deliver the takes, but uh, kind of letterboxed at 4.3 so we could use... Uh, because previously they were actually punching in and, and cropping that off. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that, that happened on a few occasions. But because we we're also being shot at and delivering 4K, we had a little bit of latitude in terms of resizes and little things that we could do. You know, the kind of rule of thumb generally is kind of between 20 and 30 percent is your maximum. But mm -hmm. as it turns out, you can kind of you can do a little bit more and get away with it. I won't go into too much detail about it. But um, <laughs> yeah, and I guess it depends on what resolution you're delivering the movie at too, right? Yeah, exactly. And because we were delivering as a 4K show, everything was being worked on like that. We did have a little bit of latitude. And so, yes, there were quite a lot of little repositions and things just to try and help any transitions because there was no kind of magic formula to making them work it wasn't like they'd line up two shots and there'd be one frame where everything would be perfectly lined up and you could just use that to snap them to quite often mm -hmm. they shot with a little bit of crossover so if they were finishing one take they'd leave it run a little bit long and when they picked oh, it up the smart. following day they'd try and kind of do as much as possible before the cut point so that we had yeah. a kind of natural area so we could try and find the best fit transition, basically. That's interesting. That actually plays into the next thing I was going to ask you. <laughs> Back in the day, I'll say, um, when I first started working in the industry, I worked on a few feature films where I'd be on set and I was taking a live feed from the camera. And essentially, the moment they'd yell cut, I'd stop capturing and then I'd do a rough composite of something that just happened. So as an example, there was one where there was like a time travel situation. The actor needed to talk to himself. So I comped that together. And then, you know, the, the goal was 20 seconds after they yell cut, I'm able to play something back to the monitor so that they could see it to look to see where were the eye lines right. Or, you know, even if I was comping out the background. Nowadays, video assists can do this and I'm curious uh, you know there's also been a couple jobs I've been on where they brought in an editor to work on set do you know if anything like this was done where they were actually taking shot one okay now we just rolled shot two let's put them back to back and see if the timing or the speed at which people are walking or any of that lined up properly that was the plan originally and they did have an on-set compositor for the first week or so but it became quite clear very early on that there was no point trying to show something that was working if they didn't know that those were the takes that were going to be used because in order to perfectly match one shot into the next you'd ha you had to know exactly what take that was and that was something that Lee the editor was determining that morning so basically they do a day shoot following morning Lee and his assistant Pierce would come in they'd watch the dailies through and Sam would give him a ring at say 10 a.m. say rushes were generally between an hour and hour and a half every day so Sam would ring him up before they turned over for the first shot of the day and he'd say what do you think we should use which what should we pick and Sam always had his picks of 
what he thought was the best take from the previous day from the script continuity. But when Lee came in to see it the following morning, Lee's decision wouldn't always tally with Sam's. And so Lee was being asked within an hour or so of having watched the rushes, which take he thought was the one that they should go with. So Lee was having to make that decision before they started shooting yeah. the next day with the kind of pressure that the decision he was making right then and there was affecting the full the next day's shooting. Wow. And I guess there's a lot that has to go into that decision where, you know, something that may have been able to have been cut out, like you said, it, you could have cut it out previously, you're stuck with it. But also, there's probably things that he didn't like, but there were things that he did like. He had to kind of weigh the pros and cons of each take because of how much was going on in, in like you said, a potentially five or eight minute shot. Mm -hmm. And then there were, there were kind of trade-offs and things that were kind of taking place. And, you know, sometimes Sam would have a preferred moment in a, in a take and that was kind of obvious, but Lee was looking at more kind of of the big picture, I think. And so in terms of kind of pay, like an editor's viewpoint, so Lee and Sam would, would discuss it sometimes at kind of a fairly decent length the following morning in order to mm -hmm. decide and there are a few occasions where Sam would kind of come back to Lee and say damn you you're right that is the right one to go for but in order to convince him we had to uh, or Lee and Pierce in the first instance would have to do a very quick mock-up of how the two shots would transition so how, the, how they'd work with the previous take and into the next one and so every day we had a kind of process of deciding on what the best take was and then implementing that in a way that we could show Sam and kind of make everyone happy that the stitch was going to work and that was the best foot forward in, in, in carrying on with the project. So I see it was a it was a kind of high pressured morning and afternoon <laughs> by kind of four o'clock every day. Uh, we'd have a kind of an avid temp version of the stitch done, which we'd send back to sets and it would include sound effects, sometimes kind of music cues, bits and pieces like that. And so Sam was being sent kind of a working build of the film piece by piece every single day. So then I guess they were probably playing that before they're about to roll the next take, you know, as an example, if shot one was recorded yesterday, okay, the editor says that's the take to use. Now they bring it onto set and they could play that over and over yep. while rehearsing, recording the next shot that lines up with it. Yes, exactly. So they'd find out what the chosen take was and then they'd line up the next day's shoot or that day's shoot. Uh, as closely as possible. So they'd have video playback, they'd have hair and makeup with all their photos, they'd have as much guidance as possible to line it up to match the previous decided take um, to give a kind of fighting chance to um, make them line up. <laughs> yeah. And it was pretty remarkable that, you know, of, of all these takes that they were having to de decide that quickly on, they never changed their minds. They never, they never went back and said actually that was the wrong decision it was the right decision every single time that's amazing hmm. and i guess for every everyone tuning in that is a film enthusiast but maybe you don't work in the industry just to go back to a couple of the points made about how much of an effect this has on the editor what i find really fascinating is you know usually it's not uncommon that certain angles get cut from a scene or maybe you cut around something planned initially to be in the cut. Or maybe even entire scenes get removed from a movie because, you know what, that actually doesn't aid the bigger picture of what we're trying to really convey as a message in this movie. That's not even possible here, I guess, right? No. I can find it quite amusing sometimes when you see things online, people saying, 
one-shot movie can't you know what's what's the editor's job on that film you know there's not much to edit there but actually it's kind of it opens up everything else that an editor has to do the editor's job isn't just making lots of cuts and more cuts doesn't necessarily mean better it actually starts making you look at the bigger picture and part of the edit process is being instinctive and it's kind of your judgment and lee was able to kind of see on a larger scale which takes would actually lend to a better flow of the film and then on top mm -hmm. of that he was also adding music cues and sound cues i mean the temp music mix for this film is one of the best i've heard and oh really that was lee um and the music editor peter clark um just doing amazing work but it was kind of the things that you he was able to change he did fantastically and you know that also included adding a few respeeds here and there doing a few little reframes to kind of push in on a little bit to eke out as much emotion from the moment as possible loads and loads of little i mean hundreds of little bits and pieces here there throughout the film that go completely unnoticed because you get kind of swept up in the one shot nature of it but in actual fact they were kind of vital decisions and every day's shooting impacted the next so the choices yeah. that were being made meant that it was actually fundamentally changing the film as it went along. I think Lee's worked on some massive movies with some very demanding people and I think he's almost never felt as much pressure as he had on this one because he knew that the decisions he was making within a couple of hours of seeing the rushes could be, you know, make or break the movie. Like if he made the wrong decision and they came back a month or so later in post and said, actually, yeah. I want to change the take there. To put it in perspective, we started shooting at the beginning of April and we had to have the film finished by the last week of October because that was when screeners for the Academy and for BAFTA and everything were going out. So we had from the start of shoot to the end of the film, seven months to make the entire thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it meant that from shooting a scene to that scene being turned over to visual effects we worked on, there was two weeks uh, between the two things. Uh, and once they started working on it, if they were then told a month later, oh, we've actually just changed that entire take. That's you know, thousands of frames to then redo. They wouldn't have been able to yeah. do it in time. The film, the film would never have been made. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny that you say, you mentioned the whole getting swept up in it thing. And whenever I go into movies like this that I feel were a big technical achievement, I'm always really trying to keep a keen eye on dissecting things. But I it would every every 20 minutes all of a sudden i'd forget that i'm trying to do that and i'd get just so into the story and into what's going on that i stopped trying to watch to dissect where it cut it was pretty amazing yeah and i, I suppose some part of the fun of films like these is trying to find where the cuts are um mm -hmm. and part of i think lee's enjoyment was trying to get in, in as many as possible that people didn't notice and i've seen a fair few kind of breakdowns of where people say all the cuts are now there are a couple in there that I've not seen anyone pick up on, and they were some of the more oh, they were some of the more <laughs> ambitious um, places. I mean, some sometimes nine times out of ten, the cuts were being put in the places that had been pre-planned. But the, on mm -hmm. the odd, on on the odd occasion where Lee wanted to use two different bits of a single take, and there wasn't necessarily a plan to cut at that point, they found some very ingenious ways to put these stitches in, and a couple of them were so well done that even knowing they're there you can you can barely make them out and yeah so far i've not seen huh. there there are two in particular i won't give give them away where they are but if you'd seen the before and after of 
what they were having just been shot to how they are in the final movie. Assuming you may be talking about the bridge scene, that to me was the most amazing no, moment. No, no, not, not even that one. No, there are a, a couple of them, you know, you, you wouldn't yeah. necessarily know that they're even a cut coming. And I think huh. one, of, one of them in particular was shown at the Bake Off. I think that kind of impressed a lot of people. I think that's probably partly responsible for the film doing as well as it did in the visual effects categories. Yeah, for sure. So in that sense, though, if you shot something today and then you're supposed to go out the next day and shoot the following shot, but all of a sudden it's cloudy and yesterday was sunny, what happens? Is it just treated in VFX to replace the sky and, and work on uh, vi uh, the lighting and visual effects? Or would you change what was going to be shot that day? There was weather cover that they had available. So the film was predominantly shot in story order. Um, we actually had a few overly sunny days and sunny days are not are not great for a film like this because you get hard shadows you get things that are very difficult to grade out mm. um the perfect weather for this one was an overcast day england in spring is not as gloriously sunny as you might <laughs> hope it was so that that worked in our favor but if it was a sunny day they just wouldn't shoot they'd rehearse and so oh, interesting funnily enough we had so after four months of rehearsal before the shoot even kicked off we finally got to day one of shooting and it was a gloriously sunny day and so right, right and you'd think you know the pressure of the studio kind of they want to see they want to see the results of their four months of rehearsal but rather than kind of cave in and just shoot something for the sake of it Sam and the producers took the decision to say nope we can't shoot it's too bright we're just going to rehearse and so the first day of the shoot they didn't shoot and they rehearsed and they rehearsed and the next day they got ahead of themselves and so actually by the by the end of the first week i think there were two days ahead of schedule even though they missed an entire day at the beginning i see yeah and i guess even on days that seemed like a natural flow between shots the colorist still has so much work to do because normally changing angles or even changing to a new scene sometimes if the color isn't done well it is kind of jarring and you can tell but in this situation it literally has to look like the same shot. Yeah. So the, I assume the color was done at Company 3? The color was done at Company 3. There was a kind of a mandate given from uh, Roger early on that he didn't want there to be visual effects tinkering with the grades during the stitches. And so what, what actually happened was we had a kind of dailies grade that we had in the Avid throughout the shoot. And at the end of shoot, uh, Roger went in. And once we knew, because by the end of shoot, you know, a couple of days after that finished, we had the film assembled because of, of the nature of it. So they knew what all the takes were. Uh, Roger was able to go into Company 3 uh, and they just lined up all those takes. We took off all of the kind of stitches and the respeeds and everything and we just lined, you know, we bolted all the shots together just with cut points at the stitch points. And Roger went, mm -hmm. went through and did a kind of grade to bring the shots in line as much as possible. So at that point, you're creating a new grade. So when VFX send shots back to drop into the edit how are those going to line up color wise with what you received from dailies and that that was again that was another difficulty so we did have a situation early on in shoot where having shot a couple of days worth of footage roger came into company three and they did a kind of regrade but because of the speed of which we were turning things over we'd already turned that sequence over to visual effects and we actually had these regraded shots delivered back to us in the edit. We replaced all our Avid Media with these regrades, but it ended up being 
very difficult because we had to then resupply all the CDLs to the visual effects vendor to replace what they already had. We had to go back into all of our comps for everything that we'd done in the edit to swap out with the, with the regrade. But that's good that you stayed compliant to CDLs to allow that to happen because it, it could have been easy for him to go back into company three and do the regrade, but not stay CDL compliant, get a better product, but not stay compatible with the workflow between VFX. Well, no, yeah. And, and that was, that was important because if they had a whole bunch of dynamic grades and things going on in the shots, it would be very difficult to match when the visual effects uh, came back to us in the edit. And, and so we kind of, we asked and they agreed that the Avid dailies grade just remain the dailies grade, even though Roger and James, his wife had gone into company three to do this kind of grade pass once they'd finished shooting. That was something that company three had in their back pocket and was available for um, MPC to reference if they needed. But essentially, mm -hmm. um, they were still delivering shots back to the dailies grade as was shot. But then when the final grade was taking place and the, and the kind of the shots were being delivered back, in order to give as much control as possible for the stitches in particular, mats were being supplied for the kind of the A and B side of the stitches so that oh, sure. individual elements could be tweaked by Roger and Greg, the colorist at Company 3. But because yeah, very few are simple wipes from one shot to the next, they're all very complicated with lots of different elements. Those mats yeah. themselves became yeah. a bit of a beast to track and deliver. I see. I felt like there were times where virtual objects or additional shots of a couple actors walking in front of maybe a green screen were shot and comped in to help some of the transitions. I'm curious, assuming I'm right, how much of that was planned versus, okay, you get to VFX, you realize, you know what, we need to add something else in here because it isn't working. You go back and do like an insert shoot almost to add another layer in. Uh, not as much as you, you might think. Most of it was done and planned as part of what was in the, the stitch document that I discussed earlier. And most of it was kind of already there. There were a couple of occasions where they needed to bolster what was already there, kind of add a CG element, perhaps sometimes in, in front, but without going into too I much see. detail. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, didn't have a whole big element shoot to try and fix issues uh, where they shot stuff against green screen. It was maybe a handful of occasions where just what had been shot wasn't quite working and they kind of replaced what was already there with something else. It wasn't like they stuck a whole uh -huh. big thing in frame just to try and completely obscure the cut. <laughs> uh, although some, sometimes we kind of wish they would, but um, Sam was very keen from early on to try and keep the characters in frame the entire time. And a big part of it was he didn't want lots of whip pans and things being obvious cut points. And there were a couple of whip yeah. pans in the movie and they're not where cuts are. They were actually just in camera. Really? Because there were moments where they would go, they walked into one of the bunkers and it goes dark. And then, because in my head, I was like, okay, that's probably a convenient spot. That is not a cut. That is actually just what? a whip pan in camera. Yeah, the one. So Blake goes off in one direction, Schofield goes another. Camera looks one way and then whip pans around to, to Blake, I think. That one was actually you see, every single breakdown of saying where the cuts are, that's in there, but it's not a cut. Ah, that's amazing. <laughs> the cuts were in much harder places. And sometimes, you know, I mean, during the no man's land sequence and you have a, a moment where two planes fly overhead and the easy thing to do uh, or the relatively easy thing to do would have been you hear the sound of planes the camera tilts up you see two planes fly overhead the camera comes back down 
and you've got your cut point because you can just sure. go up to it. But Sam never wanted to do that. He never wanted to leave. That was another spot I assumed there was one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, he never he didn't want to take the easy route point. Sometimes That's great. The easy route would have been better for our health, but um <laughs> <laughs> And and so when you needed to turn these over, for any of these transitions that had to go to a VFX team, I guess MPC in this case, I'm used to entire shots getting essentially you you submit an EDL, the poll gets delivered as an EXR or DPX, but it's the entire shot. And then when you get it back, it's one clean shot that replaces the previous shot. But in this case, are you dicing things up at that point and making like sub shots almost? Well, yeah, when I was first kind of broached about it and being told it was a one shot film, my initial instinct was to say, oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll call every take and give that a shot number. And so every different take will be its own shot and then we'll break it down that way. And so the kind of the tail handles of one shot and the head handles of another shot would kind of, they'd overlap and we could break it down in that way. But in actual fact, because the takes were so long and we were talking about kind of five minute, six minute, eight minute takes, the render time and the, trying to deliver shots of that length back was just too much. Yeah, and a lot of people probably don't realize that there are visual effects elements that were added if they're like, this movie didn't have much VFX, like there's probably a lot going on within each of those takes. Yeah, right? so yeah, two of the things that we kind of realized after our first turnover briefing uh, with Sam was that way more than just the stitches were the work that we needed to do. So 91% of the film is actually uh, visual effects. And by that, I don't just mean we pulled an entire take and of that take, you know, there may have been two thirds of it that had some work in it, 91% of all the frames in the film have VFX work in them. There's, there's stuff that was done that you'll never know about. And, um, <laughs> um, but it was all requested things like uh, smoke on the horizon, oh, sure. trees being changed color to make them look like it wasn't early spring. It was kind of, Oh, good point. Yeah. Things like, things like that, that are just kind of in, fairly invisible, but mm -hmm. difficult to do kind of fairly easy to do in a, in a short you know one two three second shot but to try and carry on for a five minute take where the camera is moving around changing perspective looking away coming back uh, trying to keep that consistent across a take of that size is very very difficult and so mm -hmm. we tried to find the balance between not chunking up the, the takes into two shorter chunks that mpc could work on but also manage to keep a through line of things like that so we decided around 500 frames which is pretty much our cut off so we chunked up all of the shots into roughly 500 frames and turned them over like that and it wasn't as if the stitches would be the end of one shot and the beginning of another we actually made all of the stitches shots in their own right so the actual the stitch happened within the middle of that 500 frame breakdown so because they were all bid items and it also meant that they were far more easily trackable we had to make sure that we were able to reference them and not having yeah. them cross over of two shot ids was the best way to do that yeah for sure but that also meant that we were breaking up continuous takes into individual sections which is generally speaking not a great idea in the visual effects world you kind of want to keep an entire shot consistent so that when you deliver it back you don't have any pops or jumps or jars yeah and because we had you know even a 500 frame shot where uh, the bulk of the work is 
painstaking roto for backgrounds and things like that you might have one chunk ready but the following chunk not ready unless you had a few handles on there the backgrounds were gonna would pop yeah and if you got one artist doing one and they roto it something slightly different than the next artist or there's like smoke or there's something nothing nothing breaks immersion quite like something popping in a cut and because we, we were we were screening constantly because Every day Sam was being given the cut and it was kind of building and building and building. And the only way that Sam could kind of decide on it, you know, how they could change things, how they, where they could put music, do new respeeds and things was by watching the film. He wanted to watch it pretty much weekly, if not twice a week. And things like background popping would just completely break the immersion and, you know, he wasn't a fan of it. So what uh, we had to do, what, what MPC had to do was we built kind of handles into the sections, even where there was no stitch taking place. And so we had a little, ah. little bit of crossover that we could do, but it also meant that they, occasionally they were doubling up on work. But the, <laughs> the issue then is, as you, as you said, because they have different artists working on different things, say uh, they wanted to prep out some something in the background of one shot. One of the first things you do in visual effects when you do that is you degrain the shot in order to clean up the background, then you can kind of paint out whatever was in their tracking mark or whatever, and then you regrain that shot again. And occasionally, if you have one shot which is then being bookended by another one, and that regrain doesn't match exactly, there'd be almost imperceptible uh, shift. And so sometimes we'd be looking at stuff in the Avid and it would look fine, uh, we'd have a reel ready for review, we'd then give it to the DI, and even though we couldn't see it, on all their scopes and everything, there'd be a light shift, there'd be a pop, there'd be this and that. And so even when we thought we were going to get in close to the finish line with delivery, we had a whole mm. bunch of technical reasons why these things couldn't kind of back onto each other properly. And yeah, it, it meant that every single cut point between every single shot, even with if it was a stitch or not, whether, whether the two shots were joining, they had to match exactly. Um, and that was, that was a real challenge yeah especially yeah yeah and you can't just okay well why not just make it longer and deliver a longer shot without those cut points but i guess you can't right if there's a whole bunch of work that has to go into various elements yeah it's all been bro- broken down and been given given to different artists i mean mm-hmm. yeah the, there was so much work to do it wasn't as if the same guy was working on all 10 chunks of that one take that it was it had gone to different people so it was the job of kind of the MPC supervisor Greg Butler um, to kind of wrangle all of this and make sure that everything was consistent and yeah it was a kind of thankless task that because because uh, the one thing the funny uh, so whenever Sam was looking at uh, something he'd always be looking at it with the mask on he'd be looking at it with the 239 mask and so he wouldn't know where where these kind of invisible cut points that we'd put into the shots were to break them up because outside of that mat, you'd see a bunch of things that they obviously knew weren't going to make it into the frame. Yeah, and and but you'd also have the shot ID and everything in there. But Sam was only able to, Sam didn't didn't want to see that. He just wanted to see what what he'd actually be looking at. And so occasionally there'd be a pop, and Sam would say, "You know what's happened there?" And we'd say, "Oh, it's just one shot going to another." And he'd say, "What do you mean one shot going? It's a one shot film. What are you talking about?" <laughs> so we had to kind of refer to things as sections and chunks and try and make out because. In visual effects, you know shot IDs, you know where the, all the breaks are, you know all the stuff, but you don't necessarily expect the director to to be on top of all of that because it's not that's not something they should be worrying about. But so when Sam yeah. was looking at it, he's looking at it as one holistic thing, 
and we're looking at it as hundreds of different chunks and Sam just yeah. wants all of that to be consistent and we're kind of treating each one as their own battle. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd be curious how involved Deacons was in the VFX process, considering how much it actually affected cinematography. He was fairly heavily involved. Actually. I mean, he, he came in for the bulk of the VFX reviews towards the end, partly because Sam wanted to do the VFX reviews in the conform. He felt that that was the only way that he could actually assess how the shots were looking because everything was supposed to be continuous. He didn't want to do a traditional visual effects review where you've got maybe 50 or 100 shots ready and you look at them all on a loop. But we basically did VFX reviews of entire reels. So our VFX producer, Sona, and their supervisor, Guillaume, they both went through and figured out a kind of delivery schedule where we delivered in real orders. So we kind of, reel one was done first. And so once we had the shots ready for reel one, we'd get them all ready. We'd show them quickly to Sam and the Avid just to make sure that he was happy with where they were going, but then we'd uh, as quickly as possible get them ready to put them into the conform. And because mm. we were then looking at all these visual effects reviews in company three, and Roger was at company three grading anyway, you know, oftentimes we were actually interrupting his grade in order to do the visual effects reviews. <laughs> um, Roger would, would be there with his wife, James, and they'd be able to, to comment on it. But Sam was also very keen to get Roger's input, especially for the nighttime sequence in Acoust where He'd built this, you know, giant light rig for the burning church, uh, and he yeah. wanted to make sure that how visual effects were envisaging it was the same as how Roger was seeing it, and it was extremely useful to have Roger's input with that. Yeah, that scene was beautiful. It looks it looks amazing, but it was actually funny yeah. enough that we we kind of we thrashed that out with Sam first of all, showed him a version of it that he was kind of happy with to a point. And he then showed it to Roger and Roger came back straight away and said, oh, it looks good, but it's much darker than I thought it was going to be. It needs more glow. It needs more of this. Um, and so Sam, from that point on, said, this is invaluable. I need, I need your input uh, for all of these kind of decisions. And so Roger, Roger was brought in to give a lot of, it was mainly to do with the lighting and how to, just to make sure that the visual effects wasn't undermining the work that they'd done on set. I see. And so with those being conformed into reels, like that's essentially a running conformance. So when it came time to online, they already had a lot of the work done, I guess, right? Yes, yes and no. I mean, we had the visual effects review process kind of start in earnest about a month out from the grade proper, I suppose, to, uh, okay. you know, beginning. But Roger and James Deakins were already over. They wanted to come over and do a quick pass of all the stitch shots to make sure that they kind of the grade balances, you know, there, there wasn't any a huge disparity between any shots, but that meant that they were already in the country at the grading suite. Sam was then deciding that he wanted to look at all the visual effects reviews in the grading suite. And it meant that pretty much a month ahead of us actually due to start the grade, we started having to deliver shots to the DI. And so we kind of had a bit of a, bit of a scramble trying to get stuff ready it's very difficult trying to break down entire reels within, you know, we had a week to get stuff ready at times. So every week we'd be looking at a different reel. And um, yeah, so it was, it was tight. It was, um, it was definitely seat of the pants kind of time. Um, even, even though we kind of started the month before the grade was really due to start. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Is there anything else that you think is worth bringing up? 
one other thing I didn't touch on as well is that I think there was a question about whether or not we were just giving the chosen takes to the visual effects vendor and they were then kind of making the stitches work. But in actual fact, because Lee and Pierce were figuring out where they wanted the cut points to be, we would thrash out in, in editorial first and then we also had uh, an in-house team doing post-vis for us. Uh, and so edit, all of the cuts that were done on the very first day I started, Lee said, you know, sometimes visual effects like to make things look a bit prettier than what, I'm, what I've chosen in the edit. But he said, well, I've chosen it because that's the pacing of it. You're start, he's looking at things from an editorial perspective and they're looking at things from a visual effects perspective. And he said, I, if I give them a reference, I want them to match it. I don't care if, you know, by making the transition a second longer means that it's technically smoother or whatever. He says, if I've chosen that cut point, that's how I want it to be. So MPC mm -hmm. were always given kind of bulletproof reference from editorial and our great posters team, Cheap Shot, who were doing a hell of a lot of work, which kind of went kind of unnoticed really because they, I mean, they, they do extra work on the stitches and things, and then they were providing new scripts and things to MPC to then, you know, further enhance. So there was, there are a whole mm. team of guys involved in the edit kind of doing all these things on a daily basis. They don't, they don't get the the props they deserve. Yeah, because they, they did a hell of a lot of work. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you very much, Miles. This has been very informative, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us. That's actually a pleasure. Thank you very much. And everyone else, thank you for tuning in. Your support is very much appreciated. And for anyone that hasn't seen this movie, hopefully this is enough to inspire you to take the time to check it out. And just a reminder for anyone that is new to what the HPA is, please check us out at hpaonline.com. And keep an eye on social media for the reveal of what our next episode will be and who my next guest will be. Until then, that's a wrap.